He's a Russian journalist and author exposing how the Kremlin uses the Internet to its advantage. Now, Andrei Soldatov is talking to us about Putin, Trump, and the 2016 election. Hi, I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan, and this is Political Insanity. It's the weekly podcast where Matt and myself try to make a little sense out of our insane political reality. Because if you think the world has gone mad politically, well, it basically has. That's right, Matt. Uh, Bring some sanity back to your life by listening to us each week as we welcome big names and fascinating guests to break down the impact of the Trump administration. And how about our guest today from all across the world via Skype? Right. And we really appreciate that he's here with us because we need to know and understand the connection of the internet into our election. And we're speaking to Russian journalist and author Andrei Soldatov. Soldatov and his co-author Irina Boragon, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, probably didn't. They first published The Red Web, The Struggle Between Russia's Digital Dictators and the New Online Revolutionaries back in 2015. Now, Matt, in that book, this pair used investigative reporting and analysis to show how the Kremlin was using the internet to its advantage around right. the world. And they've now released a new version of their book that includes an additional chapter on Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, which, of course, is the, the all-important topic over here. This new chapter provides some very important context about Russian President Vladimir Putin's possible motivations to promote Donald Trump for president, as well as evidence of apparent leaks, uh, links between WikiLeaks, the Kremlin, and uh, and all the details of the ongoing fallout in Russia. That's right. And we're so pleased to welcome Andrei Soldatov to our Political Insanity podcast. He joins us now via Skype from Moscow. Andrei, thanks for being with us. Well, hello, and thank you for having me. And there's a little bit of a delay as we talk to Andre, uh, but it's just incredible that we can have him on this way. So let me begin by asking you, when you published the first edition of your book, I'm guessing you might not have envisaged that you would have to add a new chapter about Russian meddling in our 2016 U.S. election. Is that a fair surmise? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, to be honest, our main conclusion was uh, that the Kremlin's tactics uh, and ideas uh, how to uh, put the Internet under control in the country uh, completely failed. Uh, that was our basic conclusion. Like, we tried to use uh, technologies, uh, they tried to use intimidation techniques, uh, they did a lot, but uh, finally they achieved very little. And uh, I never imagined that uh, outside the country they could uh, actually do something uh, successful uh, in terms of uh, manipulating social media. Because they had the biggest problem they had uh, with social media. Back in 2012, uh, the deputy head of uh, the major Russian security service uh, said that we have no tools, we have no means to uh, deal with Facebook. We are absolutely helpless. Well, Andre, that's what I want to follow up on, because you've really traced uh, the Putin and his administration's connection with the Internet and social media. And, and I think you document that they were really fearful of, of this medium uh, because they thought it might incite uh, you know, political opposition to them. And, and so they, they went to great lengths to learn about the medium and also get really control over it. Is that correct? Uh, to be honest, I still very skeptical about uh, their ability to control social media. Mm. And actually, 2017, 
this year, and Russia was uh, a clear proof of that they are still uh, actually very uh, limited in their abilities to control uh, social media. We got some big protests uh, this year. We got protests in 80 towns, which is a big number for Russia. You and, said 80? Uh, 80? 80, yes. Wow, okay. Mm. Eight, 80 towns uh, in March and in, uh, in the summer. And uh, these things were mostly organized through Russian social media like Contactia, which is a, a Russian social network modeled after Facebook, and uh, through YouTube. And uh, the government didn't find any, well, actually, they were absolutely uh, helpless. They didn't know how to control this message. Uh, so I think that we need to distinguish here uh, the ability to control and the ability to exploit. Actually, okay. it's, uh, it's completely different things. Let me ask you as well, uh, you've talked about this with other American journalists. You believe that Vladimir Putin's motivation or one of his primary motivations for attempting to disrupt our election in the U.S. was in retaliation to the leak of the Panama Papers. That was the big leak of document, documents last year from an offshore banking network. I don't think most people in this country have even made that connection. Can you explain a little bit about why you think Putin was motivated to interfere in our electoral process due to the Panama Papers revelations? Uh, well, first of all, what we need to understand, uh, and it's a very important context, that uh, for people in the Kremlin, uh, most of, uh, say, the recent history of uh, the relationship about, uh, between, the, between Russia and the United States was a kind of um, arms race and uh, new technologies, how to uh, modernize, uh, how, how, excuse me, how to undermine uh, political stability in Russia. Uh, people in the Kremlin really believe that they live in a besieged fortress and under constant threat that the U.S. State Department uh, could come up with some new idea, some new technology like Facebook, and try to use this uh, new technology uh, against the Kremlin. Uh, so they, they actually they, they have this paranoid mentality. So when uh, some journalists, well, actually a lot of journalists, uh, joined their forces and started working on Panama Papers, and by April of uh, 2016, uh, started well, sending requests uh, asking the Kremlin to comment. Uh, and because it was very personal, actually, they uh, exposed a personal friend of Vladimir Putin, Sergei Aldugin, who is a cellist, and they found out that he was in control of many bank accounts, offshore accounts, uh, well, and it was about millions and millions of dollars. So Putin personally took this as an attack on him. And uh, given the fact that he got some strange idea that uh, Panama Papers was a kind of front operation uh, with some involvement on, of uh, Goldman Sachs and uh, Hillary Clinton's people, apparently he was uh, briefed in this manner. So he decided that Hillary Clinton uh, which, uh, and she already uh, has been seen by the Kremlin as a big threat because she was um, believed to be uh, behind the Moscow protests uh, during the elections in 2011-2012. 
for the people who believed in this conspiracy theories and the Kremlin, they just understood it as a new attack, another attack orchestrated by Hillary Clinton. Hmm. And they wanted to fight back. Interesting. What, what do you think is the strongest evidence that the Russian president was involved in attempts to disrupt the U.S. election? Uh, he is a very personal uh, reaction to Panama Papers. Uh, the usual way for the Kremlin to react to well, sensitive uh, investigations is uh, never to comment on them, to let the story die. But in this case, we got first comments from the Kremlin actually a day before the publication, which was really surprising. And then we had Vladimir Putin personally uh, commenting on this story and uh, defending his friend and then using some arguments provided by Wikileaks and once again attacking journalists, saying, like, it's all conspiracy. We, we know it's all about United States State Department. It's all about the United States. And so he was very clearly, personally offended. And uh, we also tried to understand um, whether there was any, uh, say, meeting uh, where people decided, I mean, the Kremlin's people decided that we needed to do something. And we believe that we probably identified at least one of his meetings, and it's, it took place in, uh, in the beginning of April. And it was the meeting at, of uh, the highest uh, government well, on the highest level, because it was a meeting of the Russian Security Council. And this meeting was presided by Vladimir Putin. Let me ask you as well, Andre. here in this country, of course, there are multiple investigations uh, into whether or not the Trump administration colluded or collaborated with Vladimir Putin's government, with the Kremlin, in attempting to influence the U.S. election. Of course, the president has denied this. And in this country, there's a really sharp partisan divide over whether you believe Trump colluded with Putin's people uh, in this manner. Based on what you know about Russian intelligence and how they operate, what are your thoughts about whether the Trump team participated in this in any way? And also, I'm curious to ask you, how do people in Russia view the investigations into our current president? Well, I would say that um, uh, people in Moscow got really nervous about this investigation. Uh, and it's not just my assessment. We can look at what actually happened after the election in Moscow. And we see uh, some hectic moves, uh, some which looks like a cover-up operation. Actually, we have uh, the cyber branch of uh, the FSB, the Russian Federal Security Service, the biggest uh, intelligence uh, agency in Russia, in complete disarray. Uh, a head of this branch was uh, dismissed. Uh, his uh, deputy uh, was convinced to some years on probation. His two most active officers were sent to jail. Uh, an FSB general who was in charge of cyber at the, at the level of uh, the Security Council was dismissed. So we see that there were some strange uh, moves. Of course, for me, it's very difficult to say what actually happened between Trump and, and Putin because I'm, I'm not insider and uh, I'm not briefed by, uh, by the U.S. Uh, investigation. But I would say that all these connections between 
Trump's people and WikiLeaks. And that's, to me, uh, the most uh, interesting and the most visible proof of some sort of cooperation. Right, uh, I mean... Probably... I mean, uh, that this uh, exchange of emails between Assange and uh, what, what, uh, and some Trump's people, which was exposed just, I think, two weeks ago, maybe a week ago. And uh, that the fact that uh, when WikiLeaks published some stuff, it was immediately picked up by Trump and he used, actually, he printed some of uh, the emails published by, uh, by WikiLeaks and used them uh, at his rally. Uh, these kind of, well, things uh, could not be uh, a coincidence. It's, it's something bigger. I understand that uh, cynically you can say that if you have uh, any kind of information on just information of, on, on your uh, well, competitor, you can, you, can use, uh, you can use it. But it was not just one instance and it lasted for months. And uh, I think it's really, really important. We need to wrap up, but let's let's one more question, if we could. And with with your knowledge, you've written two books. You're you're in Russia right now. What's the one thing that you would tell Americans in terms of uh, you know, what what do we need to know about Mr. Putin and and Russia going forward? Well, probably we we need to we all need to understand the mentality of people trained in the KGB, and the most important think about this mentality is these people are trained to uh, believe in only in base inferior motives of people. So they despise humanity, actually. They despise people. And uh, it means <laughs> that they, they, despise they people. <laughs> yeah, they're actually they're extremely cynical. If you talk to the KGB or FSB uh, officer today, uh, and you talk about the political opposition in Russia, or independent journalists, any kind of people who do anything in uh, in political uh, in, in politics, actually, uh, the usual reaction would be these people are corrupt or they are paid agents of someone because nobody uh, would would do this kind of dangerous things if he is not well recruited or paid by some forces. So we do not believe in benign motives, and this. Hmm. Very cynical approach. Uh, Vladimir Putin first he brought into the Russian politics and he used this approach against Russian opposition and against Russian media and journalists. And what we got finally, we got a society without institutions in a way. Nobody trusts any institutions in Russia. Uh, we do not trust our politicians, we do not trust our journalists, we do not trust our parliament, we do not trust our political parties, no matter pro Kremlin or uh, opposition political parties, and that left you only with two things. You have the population and a strong leader. And I think that's actually what Vladimir Putin and his people tried to export to the West, the right. idea that yeah. uh, you, you, you don't have any institutions. You just forget about that. No institutions and, to check the power of right. the authoritarian leader. And, and it sounds like Putin just, exactly. democracy is just, he just doesn't believe it. This doesn't have no. any. This doesn't believe it can be genuine. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that of course is a concern millions of Americans have, Andre, is that our institutions are have been weakened considerably in recent years, and so we follow this very closely. And 
We thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. A brave journalist right, and author uh, from really inside brave. Vladimir Putin's Russia speaking with us via Skype from Moscow. Andrei Soldatov, a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. He's Andrei Soldatov. Thank you. Uh, He's the co-author of The Red Web, The Struggle Between Russia's Digital Dictators and the New Online Revolutionaries, with a new chapter looking at our election. Pretty incredible that uh, we could Skype him in. And what insights? Unbelievable and and just really eye-opening. And I think our listeners will get a lot out of it. Lots more to come on our podcast. Thanks for listening. Always fascinating guests. Good to be with you, Matt. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Melissa.